sounds funny sometimes to say CEO, but I'm the librarian at the Enoch Pratt Free Library. And so we are very pleased that you could be here with us for a special, special uh, occasion and with a special, special uh, speaker. You may know that uh, for a number of years, the Pratt Library has had an annual Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. commemorative lecture. And this afternoon, it is our really special honor to have as our speaker, Dr. Benjamin F. Chavis Jr. The president, up gas. The president and CEO of the National Newspaper Publishers Association and the president of Education Online Services Corporation that you may not know is the world's largest. And this is, um, in this day and age, this is really uh, significant the world's largest provider of online higher education for historically black colleges and universities across America. Amen, that's right. <laughs> now this um, year, you know, marks the 50th anniversary of the March in Selma. And so it's so uh, meaningful for us to be here yet again to continue to be torchbearers, really, of Dr. King's message. And our commemorative lecture, we hope, reminds everyone to keep the dream alive, not only at this time of the year, but all during the year. It's also important to look forward and spotlight the next generation of young people who are making history. And we're very pleased to let you know that some of them will be at the library in the next few weeks, like the ballerina Misty Copeland who is the first premier African-American ballet dancer for the American Ballet Theater, and also Rhodes Scholar and best-selling author Wes Moore. He'll be here in a couple of weeks discussing his new book, The Work, My Search for a Life That Matters. But today, we really have something, and we hope that you will be some of the first people to pick up the new book, Fusion, Bridging the Gap Between Civil Rights and Hip-Hop. And it's authored by Dr. Chavis and M.C. Light. But before, oh yeah, definitely clap on that one. He's an author, he has so many degrees, he's a reverend doctor, he's everything. However, but for librarians, I mentioned he was a hero. At the age of 12 in Oxford, North Carolina, he desegregated his hometown's white-only library, becoming the first African-American in that town to have a library card. <laughs> so you know, not only has he done all this for civil rights and everyone's rights, but he is a hero to librarians all over the country. So please welcome Dr. Chavis. Good evening. First and foremost, we want to thank God uh, for the opportunity to be alive in 2015 to witness a national celebration of the legacy and living dream of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. To all of the officials of the Enoch Pratt Free Library, uh, 
Brothers and sisters, thank you for coming out. Um, I'm not a stranger to Baltimore. I'm a former resident here uh, when I was head of the NAACP, and I'm always glad to have an opportunity to come back, but particularly on this weekend, the King weekend, as we refocus on not only the meaning of what Dr. King stood for, what he died for, and what uh, the Civil Rights Movement must continue to uh, stand up for, but also to ask the question, not only to myself, but to all of us, what it is that all of us can do uh, now, in light of uh, the commitment, in light of the sacrifice, in light of all of the uh, uh, toil and struggle and giving of others, because all of us, including myself, we, are, we have inherited uh, quite a challenge. We've also inherited quite a legacy. Uh, I grew up in the Civil Rights Movement, and I was just so thankful to have an opportunity as a teenager uh, to work with uh, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in my home state of North Carolina. In fact, I just flew from North Carolina uh, this morning. I was so glad that the weather is good today because I did not want to be late for, uh, for this engagement. Um, there are about three things that I want to talk about for a few minutes, and I've asked the library officials that at the end, I think we have time for a little question and answer period. Uh, I certainly have something to say, but I also want to hear uh, from some of you. I see some familiar faces out in the audience, uh, some brothers and sisters that I've struggled with and who have, uh, we've worked together in many different venues. And one of the things I just want to say up front is that when you stand for freedom, justice, and equality, like Dr. King, it really means that you have to be conscious and concerned uh, not only what is going on in your own uh, community, in your own family, your own neighborhood, your own state, but you have to be uh, prone to be wanting to know what is happening with brothers and sisters, people, not only in America, but all over the world. Dr. King evolved. And if you know anything about his, uh, how he evolved from 1963 to 68, that five-year period from when he made the I Have a Dream speech to his solidarity with um, sanitation workers in Memphis, and, 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 and particularly uh, focusing on the importance of economic equality, economic justice. And I think in 2015, we're still where Dr. King's forecast we would be. No question about it, we've made a lot of great progress. And I want to say on the record that the fact that President Barack Obama is the President of the United States, is itself a testimony uh, that everything that we struggle for in the Civil Rights Movement was not in vain. I think that President Obama is a great president. I know a lot of people are throwing rocks at him, but what, what do you expect? People threw rocks at Dr. King. Uh, you know, it's interesting to me that I hear a lot of people say, well, you know, we are, uh, they come up to me and say, man, we, you know, we're tired of marching. And most people who say that never march. <laughs> you know, you, you're tired of, how can you be tired of something you, you haven't done? If we have more people uh, to stand up and to uh, say wrong when wrong is done, our society would be much further down Freedom's Road. Uh, I'm so encouraged uh, by the young people in Ferguson, Missouri, by the young people in New York, by the young people in Cleveland, places 
unexpectedly uh, rose up to say no uh, to racially motivated police brutality. And I think that, uh, yes, the slogan, Black Lives Matter, but Dr. King would say that all lives matter. All lives matter. And one of the things that we know from the Civil Rights Movement, every inch of progress that black people have made in America has inured benefit to all people. The struggle is just not what we do, but what we do, yes, for ourselves, but what we do for others as well. And so, number one, Dr. King's concept of the beloved community. His last book was, where do we go from here, chaos or community? And certainly, now that uh, the Republicans have taken over the Congress, uh, there's a question. There's almost two Americas, one trying to go in a progressive direction, another trying to go backwards, say maybe we've gone too far, maybe this experiment with inclusivity is not right. And so now you have people in, high, in state legislatures, even in Maryland, as well as in the Congress of the United States, introducing bills to restrict freedom, introducing bills to suppress voting, introducing bills to deny health care, introducing bills to make it more difficult for young people to get a quality education. And that's why I'm so pleased, and President Obama is going to talk about it Tuesday night in the State of Union message, his initiative to make college affordable, free, for the first two years for any student who's qualified to go to college. I support that initiative. We also should support that initiative. Now, to tell you the truth, I don't think a price tag ought to be on learning. We live in the wealthiest society in the world. And if Dr. King were alive today, he would say that part of being in the beloved communities means that you have access to education for all people. You know, uh, education should not become a commodity where those who have enough money can get enough education. That seems kind of backwards to me. Uh, no one should put a price tag on the truth. If the truth will set you free, the truth ought to be free. And so, I don't want to appear like I'm an elderly militant person. <laughs> but I must uh, be honest with you. I, I think that uh, in 2015, 50-year uh, now, anniversary of the Voting Rights Act, 50 years of the Selma to Montgomery March, you would think that after 50 years, uh, we should be marching for other things. But we still got to march, even today, for voting rights. I mean, that's very telling. We still have to march in 2015 against racially motivated police brutality. We still have to march. We still have to demonstrate. And I'm so glad that so many young people are here today because the future of the movement, it is intergenerational, but it leans toward the involvement, uh, taking the baton. I was telling the NAACP when I was elected uh, 
when I was in my early 40s, they had a big banner up on the stage, passing the torch. And I was telling my colleagues, I said, well, I hope this torch is still lit. You know, don't pass me a relic of something that has been extinguished. We need vibrancy. And I think that the young people today, uh, all youth, I think this is the best generation of young people that we've been blessed to witness. They're creative, they're talented, rather bodacious. That's good. The question is, though, our young people need the proper guidance. Our young people need the proper encouragement. There's too much in this world that discourages young people. You know, it's, it's hard to get media attention. I'm now over all the black newspapers in the United States, and I tell our publishers, I, I don't want to just read in our press what's in the Baltimore Sun or what's in the Washington Post or what's in the New York Times. We have to put the news in a perspective in a way that encourages people uh, to, to stand up and to speak out to uplift our young people. And that's why I'm a strong defender of hip-hop. And I know there, and we can talk about that during the question and answer period, but I recognize that each generation has to rise to the occasion. You know, one of the reasons why I joined the movement when I was 11, 12 years old, one, my parents encouraged me to, and two, I wanted not something better for me as, a, as, a, as an individual, I wanted something better that I could see in real time for my family and my community. And I think we should always be concerned uh, about what is going on in our own neighborhood. Don't try to change the world if you can't change where you live. You know, you cannot just say, oh, I'm going to go. Uh, a lot of people want to be missionaries, but missionaries start at home. The mission to do what is right and just starts at home. And based on what we do at home, we can certainly help brothers and sisters abroad. And some of our brothers and sisters definitely need help, you know. And one of the things you find, and I'm so pleased that one of the things I learned working with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and NAACP and CORE and SNCC, because in both those days, uh, Sister Davis, you know, you, you join more than one organization. You just don't want a little bit of freedom. You want as much freedom as you can get. So I was in all the organizations. Uh, and I was brought up in the church, still in the church, and I think that religion should bring people together, not divide people. A lot of times we use religion as, a, as an escape from reality, when religion should make you engage reality. If you say you have faith, okay, we should act on our faith. We should act in a way that we act in what we believe. Martin Luther King Jr. was a great theologian. And one of the things, one of the scriptures that he loved to preach on was from Micah. What does the Lord require of you, old man or old people, but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God, to do justice? And I think that there's too much racial injustice, there's too much economic injustice, there's too much environmental injustice. It's a whole, like, uh, matrix of injustice. And so some people say, well, that's not my issue. But what you will find out is that, as Dr. King would say, that a threat to justice anywhere, an injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. That's his quote. And so we have to make sure that, and that's why he came out against the Vietnam War. 
a lot of people thought, well, what does America's war in Vietnam have to do with civil rights in the United States? Well, Dr. King knew that if you are mistreating people abroad, much of American's foreign policy emerges out of its domestic policy. You, treat, you mistreat people at home, you mistreat people abroad. If you want to stop the mistreatment of people abroad, you have to stop the mistreatment of people at home. And that's what we should be working to. And so, brothers and sisters, I am, uh, I've been around for a while. I've been in many of our organizations. And I think, how many of you have seen the movie Selma? Very good. It's a great movie. Um, and whether or not it gets the Oscar or not for the best picture, I think it's one of the best pictures. And I think that uh, Common and John Legend did the soundtrack entitled Glory. It was an excellent soundtrack. And I highly recommend, if you haven't seen the movie, to go see it. And they're making a, uh, an opportunity now for students, high school students, to see the movie free. I think that um, the visual image, the culture, the consciousness of our people is impacted based on what we see. And now we live in the internet age. During most of my organizing years, younger years, there was no such thing as the internet. Uh, we didn't have a device. Uh, we were still mimeographing. We were still, we didn't even have Xerox machine. And we were still trying to encourage people. So how did you get people out to a meeting? It's by word of mouth, making announcements. And people came out to mass meetings. Now, in order to get something out or get people motivated, you have to make sure that you're on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. And I'm on there, you know, because I have to be where young people particularly engage. And it's okay. But I also think that technology, if we have more access to technology today than ever before, then we should be using the technology to better inform people. We should be using the technology to inspire people, to motivate people. Uh, not to have, it's interesting to me, uh, when I go back to my hometown in Oxford, where I uh, helped to desegregate the library, uh, the day that we finally could get in the library, everybody was just reading books. But as time went on, now people walk by the library, not because they're told you can't uh, go to this library because of the color of your skin. We've somehow lost interest in reading books. We used to have a reading list. You couldn't be in the movement if you were not reading. And I think we need a reading list today. Intergenerational reading list. We ought to read to our young people. We ought to allow our young people to read to us. What book have you read lately? What website informs where you can find the truth. Those are some realities that we need to work on because I believe that it's interesting. When I travel outside of the United States, I find some brothers and sisters in Africa and the Caribbean know more about what is going on here in Baltimore than brothers and sisters who live in Baltimore. I'm telling you the truth. The consciousness. Sometimes when we are close to the situation, we go to sleep on the situation. We need a reawakening. One of the greatest ways to pay tribute to Martin Luther King, Jr. is to join one of the civil rights organizations, is to be active, is to make contributions, and then become a leader yourself. All good leaders are first good followers. I learned by learning from my mentors, and I'm so thankful that I had a mother and father that stood with me. The truth of the matter is I'm, I'm credited for desegregating the library, but what actually happened 
Yes, one day walking home from school, I decided to go in this library. I was 12 years old. They called the police. My mother and father were school teachers. And the, the, the librarian, uh, the white librarian was so nervous. She says, young man, you're in the wrong place. I said, no, oh, ma'am, this, this is where the books are. I'm in the right place. She said, well, you can't be in here. You're going to get arrested. You're going to get your mother and father in trouble. I said, oh, no, I don't, definitely don't want to get my mother and father in trouble. So they called the cops, and they called my parents. And one of the best days of my life, instead of my parents scolding me for doing what at that time was illegal, my parents stood with me, and that's why the uh, library was desegregated. And so, because, you know, my parents asked me, I said, well, how did you go there? I said, well, because I've been watching you. Young people watch the adults and the elders around them, you know, uh, I came from an environment where everything was segregated. I, I do not know how to play golf because they didn't even allow us to caddy in my hometown. You could not go near the golf. I can't, I'm 67 years old. I cannot swim. The reason? Because the swimming pools where I grew up were segregated. I can read because I went in that library. And so I learned something at an early age. An injustice is not going to change itself. It has to be challenged. And it has to be challenged consistently. Sometimes when you say we want freedom, justice, and equality, it's not going to come overnight. It's not going to come with a, uh, a click of a hand. It sometimes takes a protracted struggle. It takes time to change America. It takes time to change our communities. But it will change. It will happen. What we have to work, guard against is becoming cynical. It's becoming hopeless. It's thinking that the powers that be are invincible. In fact, the power of the people is always greater than those who rule over the people. But sometimes the people's consciousness has been so dull, we don't even realize the power that we have in our own hands. Why do you think they're trying to suppress the vote? Because more of us are voting. That's why. Why do you think they're trying to uh, prevent uh, more uh, uh, fair immigration policy? The browning of America is happening. And we need more equality and more justice. And particularly, I would say to African Americans, I don't want us to get in a situation where we start stiff-arming other persons of color because they speak another language or because they come from another culture. One of the things Dr. King would teach us that our, we lose our own integrity if we don't also speak out for the empowerment of other people. Empowerment is not contained by one racial group. We have to struggle to make sure that all of God's people, that all of God's children get a fair chance at life. If you want a fair chance at your own life, you have to make sure that others around you also have a fair chance. That is the beloved community. It is an inclusive community, not exclusive. I can't wait. I know uh, it's going to be interesting on Tuesday night when the president gives his State of the Union message. You're going to see some applause on one side of the aisle. You're going to see some silence on the other side of the aisle. Uh, but they are mad with him for his executive actions. I think he needs to take even more executive actions. Uh, you know, don't wait. If you know that these people over there are going to try to dismantle uh, the progress that has been made, you have to do something to try to go around them. And I think most Americans, the public opinion polls are showing that the more executive actions President Obama takes, the more his public opinion uh, uh, support rises in terms of polling of all people. Why? Because that's what the president is supposed to do. 
supposed to prod the, country, uh, the Congress, it's supposed to push through legislation, and they're supposed to also ratify. We've never gotten the Voting Rights Act if it had not been for the Selma to Montgomery March. We never would have gotten the Civil Rights Act if it had not been for the Civil Rights Movement. We never would have gotten the Fair Housing Act if it had not been for the Civil Rights Movement. President Clinton, in 1994, issued an executive order on environmental justice because we had built an environmental justice movement. We had found out that minorities were disproportionately exposed to environmental hazards. I remember when President Reagan was uh, president, the EPA was in a state of denial about exposure uh, to hazards. And even some of my colleagues in the civil rights movement said, well, Ben, this environmental thing has nothing to do with civil rights. Until we found out that our disproportionate exposure to environmental hazards has a direct relationship with the disproportionate rise in cancer, the disproportionate rise in asthma, 60% of the children who live in Harlem have asthma. They're not born with asthma. They get asthma from breathing the air uh, of the pollution that's disproportionate over Harlem. And then even when Mayor Dinkins was the mayor of New York, they allowed a toxic waste incinerator to be built in Harlem, of all places, where the people are already exposed disproportionately. You build an incinerator, and then you build a playground on top of the incinerator where children play while they burn the garbage from all over New York and Harlem. That's, that was an example of environmental racism. And it's not that I'm a genius or anything, but I learned a long time ago. If you see something, you better define what you're seeing. You better undergird what you're seeing with facts and statistics, because you just can't make an allegation in our society. You have to statistically, statistically prove that this is with intent and this is wrong, and we were successful. And now, guess what? The environmental justice movement is a worldwide movement, not just in America, all over the world, where people are demanding their rights. Uh, and one of the things we learned from my Native American brothers and sisters, you do have to pay attention to what's in your water. You do have to pay attention to the air that you breathe. You do have to pay attention to the quality of the food that you eat if you want a healthy life. And part of our struggle for freedom, justice, and equality, sometimes when people hear those terms, they don't realize we're talking about we want everybody to live better. Uh, during, the, during the height of the Black Power Movement, which I was very much involved in, we used to have these debates all the time. And one of the debates was about uh, revolutionary suicide. I was opposed to that. To me, the revolutionary is supposed to live, not to die. You know, I'm not into anything that's going to take life away of those in the movement or any other people. And I think sometimes we get into ideological debates or ideological uh, conflict uh, because we're looking for some easy way to define what the problem is and looking for easy out. These problems that we face are complex. And what you find is one injustice is connected to another form of injustice. And that's why we should be ever conscious. And I thank Dr. King and his growth that he had a group of people around him all of the time that would raise questions. They just didn't go along with everything that was planned. And as a result, the plans that were finally executed, one of the things you saw at the Selma to Montgomery March, people wondered why Dr. King did not march on that day uh, after Bloody Sunday, because he knew that we were not prepared to go all the way to Montgomery. 
when you start something, you have to be responsible for the people that follow you. You just can't send people out. Uh, and I'm going to give you an example. One day in, Sh- in Raleigh, we were going to have a civil rights uh, rally, and I was on the, young on the staff, and part of my job was to put up the posters. Again, we didn't have the Internet back then. So my job was to put up the posters. And I was proud to put up the posters that Dr. King was going to make a speech at Shaw. And one day I saw a car open. I was Dr. King. He got out of the car, and I said, oh, I must be putting up the posters wrong. He grabbed a hammer and some tacks and started putting up the posters. I said, Dr. King, I got this. He said, no, son, I'm not going to ask you to do something that I would not do myself. He taught me a lesson about leadership. Leadership is not arrogance. Leadership is not looking down on people. Leadership is looking up and helping people to lift themselves up. Best power of empowerment is to help people to empower themselves. I tell people in the church all the time, it's good to feed the poor, but our job is to help the poor be poor no more. And I know people say, well, in the scripture said, Jesus said the poor will be with us all the time. That's in the scripture, but you misread the scripture if you think that Jesus wants people to be poor. Sometimes we look for these little passages in the Bible to justify our do-nothingness. What does the Lord require of us but to do justice, love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God? I was so thankful that... um, the assassin's bullet was not able to assassinate the movement. So thankful. April 4th, 1968 was a sad day. Dr. King was in Memphis with ASFME, the American Federation of State County Municipal Employees, helping sanitation workers to get better pay, better respect as sanitation workers. And at the same time, we had a similar strike in Charlotte. I was organizing in Charlotte. I was hoping I was the advance, but I was hoping Dr. King was going to get from Memphis to Charlotte. Obviously, he did not make it. But those of us that were in the movement at that time, and keep in mind, I was a college student at the time, but also a full-time worker. I probably took longer to finish college because I was in the movement. But I can tell you, I was a better student because I was in the movement. The movement did not distract from my academics. I became a chemist, uh, but after Dr. King was killed, I said, well, I can be a chemist and a preacher, too. So I went back to school. Education is important, and I think that uh, one of the things that we have for our young people today, and I know uh, our young people today ask me all the time, they want to get a job, they want to make money, but life is not only about making money. Life is about trying to find your God-given gifts and talent. Everybody has a gift and talent. Probably many gifts and talents. And it's a tragedy that some of us live our whole lives without discovering what it is uniquely that God has given to each of us. The movement is about helping people to not only find themselves, but to encourage them to fulfill your God-given gifts and destiny in life. And that's why I'm very hopeful. I'm optimistic because I believe that young people today want a better life. And I think that's a good thing. I think young people today want not just to go back and relish in the past, but to learn from the past so that the future can be better. And I think that's good. 
That's why in, in hip-hop, it is aspirational. A lot of times the rappers rap about things they don't even have. That's fine. That's your aspiration. Don't level let anybody take away your dream, your aspiration, your hope. That's so uh, important. Some of you know that after Dr. King was killed in 68, I stayed in the movement. I joined the United Church of Christ Commission for Racial Justice, and that's how I was sent to Wilmington, North Carolina, in February of 1971. I'm not going to have time to tell you the whole Wilmington 10 story, but it was over school desegregation. It was over black students having the right to get a good education without being discriminated against. And 10 of us, nine black, one white, eight of them were only 16, 17 years old. I was 24 years at the time. Because we stood up to the racism in Wilmington, North Carolina, we were put into prison. I spent most of the 1970s in prison. But during the time I was fighting the Wilmington 10 case, I never lost hope. I never felt that God had abandoned me. And I certainly wasn't going to abandon the Lord, and I was not going to abandon the movement. My position was, you put me in prison because we're organizing, I'm going to organize in prison. And that's exactly what we did. We eventually won the case. But the thing that I want to tell you about my prison experience was a learning. Uh, I had the longest sentence. I had a 34-year sentence. So at Central Prison, before they assign you to uh, what your main prison you'll be assigned, they keep you for several months, observation, run a lot of tests. And so one of the tests they run on you when you're incarcerated is a psychological test. They actually give you a test, and then they have you to talk to a, a psychiatrist. And so it came time. I took the test, the written test. Psychiatrist called me, prison psychiatrist, and says, um, uh, Reverend Chavis, um, we're concerned about some of your uh, test score answers. And I said, well, I was truthful. I said, what, what's, your, what's your concern? Well, one of the questions we asked you in the beginning was, what did you dream about last night? And I said, escaping. <laughs> that was the truth. Uh, did you want me to put on the paper that, oh, this is a great prison. I love being here. Uh, please keep me as long as you can. It's healthy to want to get out of a situation that you know is not right. Don't, don't let the powers make you comfortable with being consigned to something you know is not right. So after I have felt, after we finished, I had to put the psychiatrist on the cot. He was flabbergasted, flabbergasted, you know. Uh, because sometimes we give answers when people ask, our quest ask us questions. We give what's called an expedient answer because we tell people what we think they want to hear or we tell people how maybe in order to get to point A from, to, to point B, I will say this. I know it's not right, but I'm going to say this because I want to advance myself. That's not the right way, brothers and sisters. First thing you have to be true to is true to God. And then you be true to yourself. You be true to the movement of your people. There were all kinds of threats on Dr. King's life. They tried everything they could. Even sent Mrs. King uh, false tapes about him. They tried everything they could. Even wrote a note to Dr. King telling him he should commit suicide. This is the government. The COINTEL program. 
And the people who wrote the letter had issues themselves. Jacob who had issues. Big issues. Yet he was going to try to get Dr. King in some compromised position. But the thing is, the point I'm, reason, I'm bringing this up, brothers and sisters, a lot of times uh, when we uh, hear about uh, Malcolm or Martin or Mega or Rosa Parks or Harriet Tubman or Fannie Lou Hamer, you may think that these brothers and sisters are somehow uh, out of our reach. When in truth, I'm looking at future Rosa Parks, Fannie Lou Hamer's, Malcolm X's, Martin Luther King Jr.'s, Megas. I'm looking at future freedom fighters. Freedom fighters emerge out of the context of people demanding and struggling for freedom, justice, and equality. I'm at 67. I'm not the person I was when I was 24. I've learned a lot. And I thank God that the Enoch Pratt Library invited me here for a few minutes to speak to you about the living legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. We've come a long way in 50 years. A long way. But brothers and sisters, there's a tendency in our society that when we make progress, there's a reaction to the progress. The Tea Party is a reaction to progress. I don't know what tea they're drinking. I don't know what tea they're smoking. <laughs> but it's not a healthy tea. Because they want to make our society more exclusive. They want to make our society where diversity is something uh, uh, of ill meaning rather than something that should be celebrated. The beloved community that Dr. King lived his whole life and preached about is a community where all people are respected, where diversity is a strength, not a weakness, where inclusivity is the march of the day, is the order of the day, not exclusivity. I saw a play last night in Pembroke, North Carolina, about Paul Robeson. I hope y'all learned something about the life of Paul Robeson. He was a great orator, great lawyer, outstanding athlete. But more than that, when he got the taste of fighting for freedom, he decided not to uh, retreat. And because he took a front position, Paul Robeson, they began to take away all of it. Even, even though he was an all-star at the Rutgers football team, because he was outspoken for racial justice on the global plane, they took away his award. They tried to strip him. But one thing that society can't take away from you is who you are, who you really are. I used to tell the brothers and sisters when people would visit me, say, Reverend Chavis, how are you doing? I said, I'm doing good. I'm not doing good because I'm in prison. I'm doing good because I'm not letting prison imprison my mind, imprison my aspirations, and I don't want you to get, because a lot of times the people that were struggling to free the women to ten, I had to give them pep talk. Because they would say, oh, man, we saw it. I said, look, I'll take care of things in here. You take care of things out there. And together, these prison doors will open up. And so after 40 years, on December the 31st, 2012, the first female governor of North Carolina issued a full pardon of innocence 
to the members of the Wilmington 10. It was a tremendous victory. Time? Okay. And, and uh, Governor Purdue, my publicist is telling me I'm over time. I'm going to just tell this story, and then we're going to have a question and answer. Do we have time for question and answer? Okay. Governor Beverly Purdue, first female, obviously she was Democrat, uh, governor of North Carolina, uh, did a study before issuing the pardon of innocence. She got a lot of letters, a lot of petitions. She also got a lot of threats. The Klan threatened her, you know, told her if she pardoned the women to attend, they were going to hurt her family. And I have to give Governor Purdue credit. I talked to her, obviously, after this happened. But in her public statement, after signing the 10 documents, uh, giving a pardon of innocence to the Wilmington 10, she said, quote, the case of the Wilmington, North Carolina 10 is a case of naked racism. This is the governor of Southern State. And I was, I was so proud of her. And um, of course, it was her last day in office. <laughs> it was the last thing she did. Because she realized when she signed it that nobody could, could, could uh, force her to change her mind. She, she was strategic about it. But the point is, we need more Governor Purdue's. You know, uh, a lot of these people that get in these places of power, and I know Merlin just elected a Republican governor. I'm not going to say anything negative about him, but I think that Merlin... Uh, it should be a progressive state. If you look at the demographics of this state, uh, there should be much more freedom and justice and equality in this state, in this city of Baltimore. There should be more economic justice, more economic equality. There should be more empowerment. I think this, don't, don't rest, brothers and sisters. Keep pushing. Last thing I'm going to say before we have the question and answer. The God that brought Martin Luther King Jr. into this world is the God that has brought all of us into this world. We all will leave one day, but while we're here, let's make sure that we help somebody improve their quality of life. Let's make sure that we work hard to open the doors for quality education for all of God's children. Let's make sure that everybody can get health care. Let's make sure that when we walk out this building and see Baltimore, you see a city and a state in Maryland where everybody gets a fair chance to fulfill their God-given gifts and aspirations. Thank you. Long live the memory. Long live the dream. Long live the legacy of Martin Luther King. God bless you. Thank you very much. I think we have time. How much time do we have? Okay. So just raise your hand or you can go to the mic because I think they're taping this session, right? Okay, so yes. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for your inspirational words today. I have a two part question, please. Yes, ma'am. Um, what was one of the first books you checked out when you were 12? And what book would you recommend that all 12 year olds today read? Thank you. Um, the process that I, uh, first I had to get a library card. <laughs> you know, um, and when I filled out the application library card, the, the, the uh, librarian was very nervous. She says, well, uh, 
uh, we're going to process your ap- application. Can you come back and get the library card? I said, no, I'll, I'll just wait. <laughs> I said, y'all didn't call the police. We went through all this. Uh, I, I, I need to get the card now. And so she gave me the card. And I guess she thought I was just going to get the card. I was so happy. All my friends were uh, looking through the window of the library. And I said, well, I need a book on uh, Frederick Douglass. And I asked uh, for the autobiography of Frederick Douglass. And um, they had it in the library. So that was the book that I checked out. Uh, It's actually called The Speeches and Writings of Frederick Douglass. Um, And everyone should know that Frederick Douglass self-taught him. He taught himself English, became a scholar, became a great orator, became an advisor to presidents. Obviously, he was an abolitionist. And he lived in this area uh, of Maryland and uh, Washington, D.C. So that was the book. And I would recommend uh, today uh, to all young people to study their life and teachings of, of course, Martin Luther King, Jr. Uh, his latest book, his last book was Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community. His other book, Strive to Freedom, is another uh, very important book that Dr. King wrote. And also, a collection of his sermons is called Strength to Love. Strength to Love, the sermons of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Uh, Now, for my college students in here, I recommend highly that you read The Wretched of the Earth by France Fanon. And the reason why I recommend college students read that book, and high school students, you can read it too, but it's a deep book, uh, is because it deals with consciousness. It deals with uh, the aberration of how um, race was kind of flipped as a category to suppress and oppress and to exploit people. Uh, Francis Fanon was an Algerian brother, African brother. And he wrote the first book in French, but it was later translated into English. He, was a, he, was a, he had his PhD in psychiatry. So he knew something about consciousness. And while I think I touched on it during my remarks, Martin Luther King, when he was a, he was a great speaker, but you could not be in the church and hear Dr. King without being moved. Dr. King had this gift about, yes, preaching, but it was preaching for a purpose, to get us up out of the pews, into the street, into the movement, and into making a difference. And that's what we need today. How you doing, Doctor? Uh, uh, my last name is Marrow, and yes, because of Henry Dickey Marrow, you integrated Oxford, North Carolina. Yes. Uh, the reason why I came is it's nice seeing you. For over twelve years, I've been trying to get an African American on the next silver dollar, because as we know, white Americans and Native Americans are the only ones that embrace that high honor. Now, Native Americans. They're against being stereotyped, Indian head tobacco, Washington Redskins. But they don't complain when the United States put them on U.S. currency. And I have a proposal that I've been sending to all the congressmen, the Congressional Black Caucus, and I want to give you a copy of it. All right, thank to you. To see if you can look at it and help us with this honor, because Martin Luther King said, when it's the right time, it's the right thing to do. And it's an honor meeting you. 
Well, thank you. It's an honor to meet uh, you, and I will... Uh, do you have a card? We see, yes, my publicist will give you uh, my card. But just let me say to you, uh, Brother Merrill, I don't think the audience is aware of the significance of the Merrill name. Um, again, in my hometown, Lord, my help, have mercy, Oxford, North Carolina, in 1969, one of my high school classmates was named Dickie Henry Merrill. We both graduated from high school together. I went to college, he went to the Vietnam War. When he came back to Oxford, the very week he came back from the Vietnam War, he was killed uh, by Klansmen in my hometown. In broad open daylight, a lot of witnesses. The local police refused to arrest the Klansmen. People from Raleigh had to come to put him in jail. And then the Chamber of Commerce of Oxford, the banks, raised the money to get the Klansmen out of jail. I'm back in Oxford as a school teacher, temporarily, because when I took my class and the whole school to the trial, that was my last day teaching. Because I wanted young people to witness the miscarriage of justice. And to this day, no one has ever been successfully prosecuted for the murder of Henry Marrow. There's a movie out about it called Blood Done Sign My Name. I would encourage you to see it. You can go on Netflix or get it. Blood Done Sign My Name. Uh, and it was written by a young man whose father was a United Methodist minister uh, in Oxford at that time. So, uh, yes. The name Myro is very sacred in Oxford. I will take your proposal and see what we can do about the uh, 50 cent piece, but silver, silver dollar piece. But just let me, just let me encourage you, brother. Uh, I know that you believe that that is important, and I will be glad to give it some time and support. But I just want to say to you that we have to um, pass on to the generation that's coming because believe me, when I go back to Oxford, my, my hometown where this happened, and I, and I say the name Henry Morrow, a lot of people don't know what I'm talking about. And that was just, you know, 35, 45 years ago. Well, actually, it was a little longer, about 45 years ago. And so our ability not to remember is a problem. Our ability not to recall is a problem. And I think that we have to always, uh, again, not always dwell on the tragedies that have happened, but I think the, the tragedy, we have to put the tragedies that have happened in context so that we can learn from those things to prevent future tragedies from happening. So thank you for being here, and it's good to meet you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here, Dr. Chavis. Thank you. When I was in high school, and we have the same age, there was a injustice that was done. Mm -hmm. The administrators promised that on our high school diplomas we would get what we deserved. We all took administrative courses. It was four classes. But at the end of what they did, instead of us having on our high school diplomas that we had taken administrative courses, on there is basic. And for three months, 
I was deciding if I should continue or not. I quit school. Over the summer, I decided if I was going to go back or not. And I did, from family and friends who said I should go back. <coughs> but before I quit, I told one teacher who was very encouraging. So when I went back to school, and I mean, I studied extremely hard. I mean, two or three o'clock in the morning, I would fall asleep over my books. My mom had to wake me up to go to bed. But when we had the PTA meeting, the teacher said to my mom, you know, it takes a lot of courage to go back a second time when it's not your fault. And I made a vow that I would never, ever allow another child to face injustice like that. And I thank God right today, I tell any parent, if your child is not getting what it needs in school, fight for it. Fight for it. The thing that we people of color, some of us have forgotten, we will not fight for all those things that Martin Luther King and all those people lived and died for. Fight for what you need to get. Thank you very much. I appreciate your statement. And uh, my only comment is that uh, right on, sister. Uh, thank you for your courage and for your steadfastness. And hopefully um, all of our parents, and I'm just going to say this without stepping on anybody's toes, but in truth, and we have some situations today where the children are raising the parents rather than the parents raising the children. I'm just being very honest. The weight that's on a lot of our young people today is much heavier than it was when we were young. And particularly with young brothers uh, that are facing all kind of uh, stereotypes uh, through racial profiling, uh, we do need special programs uh, to compensate for all of the weight that's on young people today. But I agree with you, my sister, that as a parent, we should make sure that our children get all of what not only they deserve to have, but what they need. Thank you so much. Yes, ma'am. Thank God for the dream um, that Martin Luther King had accomplished. Yes, ma'am. I thank God for the dream that Martin Luther King had accomplished um, and his inspirations that he did on Washington. Mm -hmm. um, as a race, um, I just remember the area that he said that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but the content of their character. And I have a dream today. Yes. That made a lot of sense because as Afro-American race, we get criticized all the time because of the great things that God has done for his people. Um, so today we can all carry on the dream. And the question I have is, I'm still concerned about the buses of the Boy Scouts. Because as a race, we went through a lot, but now we're all coming together. There's multiple buses that we can get on. And we can sit at the front where we could always sit in the back because of Rosa Parks. So as a race of people of color, we should not take things for granted 
and I am a part of the Brown versus education because we are the Browns of versus of education that we fought for education today. So I fight every day for our black young people, our black young girls, our black young boys who's just on a corner. And I tell them, get your education because this is what we fought for for my family because we are the Browns versus education. Thank you, America. Thank you, Martin Luther King. Thank you, all of you who was here and fight for your children's education. Thank you very much. Well, well said. So for any pictures or autographs or anything that you would like, um, downstairs purchase a book and we'll have Doc right behind so you can have him autograph the book and take your picture then, okay? Thank you. Yes, the collegiate book is entitled The Wretched of the Earth by France Fanon, F-A-N-O-N, Fanon. Thank you all again very much. God bless.